Uh, While Carl is handing out our text for today, we are in Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Seems like a very short segment of verses, but there's quite a bit here actually when you start digging in carefully. Yes, I still have a cough, so my hope is that I will only cough ten times during the next hour, because it seems to start when I talk, and uh, that's always the joy of this. And yes, I have a lozenge, but I'm trying to save it until it gets really bad. See, yeah, you guys get to enjoy my my expressions, Uh, we'll call it that. Yes, right. (coughs) Verse 8, chapter 2. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition, and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. Well... That sounds like a shot across the bow of Jeff Watson's profession, who is a professor of philosophy at ASU. And there are many that take it this way. They actually say that if you're a Christian, you shouldn't be studying philosophy at all. In fact, I can go back to Tertullian, who was alive in the second century. He died in... 20, in 220 A.D., and around 200 A.D., he wrote this. And he was comparing Athens, which was the home of Plato's academy, and Jerusalem, the church. So Tertullian wrote this. What indeed has Athens to do with Jerusalem? What concord is there between the academy and the church? What between heretics and Christians? Away with all attempts to produce a modeled Christianity of Stoic, Platonic, and dialect composition. We want no curious disputation after possessing Christ Jesus, no inquisition after enjoying the gospel. Now, isn't that interesting? You want to go, okay, well, then, then we shouldn't be looking at philosophy at all. Charles Spurgeon, beware of those who pretend that they're going to enrich you, but whose real object is to plunder you. They say they will give you an advanced thought, deeper ideas, a system more congruous with the age. Plenty of people would spoil you in this way by teaching you their profound thoughts, their grand inventions, and their bright ideas. Beware of all of them. Modern philosophers will accept anything except the bleeding substitute for guilty man. This is the cardinal virtue of philosophers. They extinguish one another. Their fine-spun theories do not often survive the generation that admires them. A fresh race starts fresh theories of unbelief which live their day like ephemera and then expire. Take a maxim of Socrates or of Plato and inquire whether a nation or a tribe has ever been transformed by it from barbarism to culture. A maxim of a philosopher may have measurably influenced a man in some right direction, but who has ever heard of a man's whole character being transformed by any observation of Confucius or Socrates? I confess I never have, for human teachings are barren. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, Jeff. (laughs) You're dismissed. (laughs) Now, you know, there's there's an element of truth to what we're hearing. But they also have to realize the context in which this passage is written and be very careful if you ever take one verse and apply it as if it's the only place 
into which scripture speaks about topics like this. Which is why, page two of your handout. So I created this um, piece. Took me a whale of a lot longer than I thought it would. Um, And you know I like to pull together various verses and blend them into a narrative. Because it brings a fresh insight and a fresh way of looking at it. So you see these 18 different verses, Bible verses about philosophy, and if you, you will notice there are six paragraphs and there are six rows. The rows go across. So you go from Colossians 2.8 to 1 Corinthians 2 to 1 Timothy 6, and that is paragraph number one. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ, which we have already read. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. Guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God, not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. For in him we live and move and have our being. Avoid avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time and after that have nothing to do with them. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with Paul. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. I'll stop there. And I'll let you read the rest on your own. The Bible is actually very clear when it comes to the dangers of worldly understanding of knowledge. But it doesn't mean you don't study the philosophies of man. That's why I have page three in your handout. I'm not going to read it to you. This is for your own enjoyment. But it is an article written by R.C. Sproul, who is known as an extraordinary theologian. And he answers the question resoundedly, should Christians study philosophy? With a yes, absolutely. In fact, R.C. Sproul was a philosophy major. That's what started him on his journey. He makes a very important comment at the end of the first paragraph where he writes, I came to the conclusion that you can't beware of something if you're not first aware of it. So when you think about philosophy, what does the word philosophy mean? It's two Greek words. Phileo, which means love, brotherly love, and Sophia, wisdom. It's a love of wisdom, a study of wisdom. Philosophy is unavoidable. It's everywhere. Now, you can get into a debate with somebody and very quickly understand where their worldview is. And their worldview is based on their philosophy. They may not realize it. 
They might not have ever studied philosophy, but they live it. This is you know, a simple example, but they study of metaphysics. What is, what is metaphysics? Metaphysics is exploring the basis for what makes up everything that exists. What is the basis for existence? For anything? Well, we kind of have that answer in Colossians. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Christ and for Christ. And he's before all things, and in all things in all and in him all things hold together. If you believe that, you have a foundation for understanding existence. But there are those who would say, well, we want to have anything except Jesus. Anything except Jesus. The context in this verse, you have to make sure you're very clear, is about bad theology, anti-Christ theology, not philosophy, or not theology, the philosophy, philosophy in general. So for someone to say, oh, you should never study philosophy, you're not listening. You're not paying attention to the verse. The verse is talking about things that point elsewhere. <coughs> or a warning about that which undermines Christ. Another thing to remember is Paul studied philosophy. It was part of his education. He even quotes philosophers in the Bible. <gasps> Yes, we have. There are times where you're reading along and there's a quotation and people go, where's that from? That's not in the Old Testament. Oh, that's this philosopher. Huh. He had incorporated it. And when he was in Athens, on Mars Hill, debating the Epicureans and the Stoics, how in the world would he be able to debate them if he did not understand them? I bring up R.C. Sproul again. This book called Right Now Counts Forever, Volume 4. It's basically a collection of all of his um, articles that he's ever written. He wrote this one many years ago, and he wrote this. Augustine, for his, in his passion for scholarship, was convinced that it was the duty of the Christian to learn as much as possible about as many things as possible since all truth is God's truth, all aspects of scientific inquiry are to be within the province of biblical and Christian learning. It was not by accident that the great discoveries of Western science were spearheaded by Christians, who took seriously their responsibility to exercise dominion over the earth in service to God. Rather than seeing learning, scholarship, and the pursuit of beauty as ideas foreign to the Christian enterprise, following the earlier lead of, of Augustine, many saw a pursuit of God himself in the pursuit of knowledge and of beauty. They saw that God is the source of all truth and all beauty. Throughout the centuries, Christian influences dominated the world of art as well as the world of scholarship. The legacy of this period has enriched the whole scope of history even to this day. It's imperative that we in the 21st century learn from the pioneers of the past who did not despise classical scholarship but saw this as something to be harnessed in the service of the kingdom of God. You get where I'm going here? Be thoughtful. Think deeply. There are times in your life, I would guess, that you have questioned, who am I and why am I here? What is the purpose of my life? Guess what? That's philosophy. You may have 
come up with really bad answers because you didn't understand. So this, it was interesting in my <laughs> contemplation on this topic. Obviously, I thought a lot about it. Um, I went and found my philosophy textbook from college. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I still have it. And I opened it up and went, oh my goodness, I was smart once. <laughs> I mean, it's underlined and highlighted, and there's all these notes in the sides of the pages. And I even kept my quizzes and my tests in the book. And I opened it up and I'm like, wow. I was really thinking deeply about big ideas. Fortunately, I had a Christian professor who put it all in the right context as we studied all of the isms of history. I also discovered that the same time I was taking a class on the psychology of religion and I went and found that textbook. Man, I must have been confused because it was, again, this struggle in understanding what does it mean to believe? I have a cartoon <laughs> from this week's newspaper. This week. It's from the, par the, uh, the strip called Pearls Before Swine. And they have these wonderful characters. There's Rat, who's always a cynic. You have Goat, who's thoughtful. And Pig, who's just, he kind of goes through life, you know, whatever. And the three of them are standing there. And Goat says, it's so hard to decide on one philosophical school of thought to live your life by. You've got your stoicism, your hedonism, your rationalism, your nihilism, and your existentialism. And Pig just turns to him and goes, how about do one kind thing a day for someone else? And Goat looks at him and goes, have you ever felt like you wasted four years of grad school? <laughs> you know, sometimes you can boil it down to something very simple. And yet, if you go into Stoicism, Hedonism, Rationalism, Nihilism, and Existentialism, each one is an effort to bring meaning and understanding to the big questions of life. But every one of them ignore the scriptures. It's everything but. And I will say that you can go to any one of the big questions of life and go into the scripture and there is clear direction, unequivocal advice and understanding. I actually do a lecture on the, on the theology and philosophy of science fiction. And when I start the lecture, I say, well, let's talk about philosophy. Um, what, are, what are the big questions of philosophy? And I ask the room, and I write them up on the, on the board or whatever the uh, situation is. And it's like, who am I? Why am I here? Is there a God? Does God exist? I mean, all those kind of questions. And I said, okay, so what are the questions of theology? And usually the room gets kind of quiet. And I'm like, um, well... Who is God? Huh. It's the same question. I said, you have basically, if you go into systematic theology, you have God, man, sin, salvation, end times, kind of the structure that we uh, arrange scriptures to answer the big questions, but they're all answered. You can go to some of the great theologians of our day. You have R.C. Sproul, passed away recently, philosopher. Norm Geisler, philosopher. I have his four-volume systematic theology on my shelf. I was his editor in his books on predestination. You've got William Lane Craig, who is a philosopher, but also an extraordinary apologist, and debates some of the great atheists of the world, atheists of the world, on the existence of God. 
And they can do that because they are thinking on these things deeply. C.S. Lewis wrote, To be ignorant and simple now, not to be able to meet the enemies on their own ground, would be to throw down our weapons and betray our uneducated brethren who have, under God, no defense but us against the intellectual attacks of the heathen. Good philosophy must exist if for no other reason because bad philosophy needs to be answered. So should we be studying philosophy? Is Colossians talking about it differently? Here's a little trick that I don't think anybody realizes. In the Greek, it doesn't say philosophy, it says the philosophy. The word the is missing in every English translation. Paul is talking about specific thought that has wormed its way into the church. Later on, when it totally flowered, it was called Gnosticism. But this idea that there could be no divine because there's no material. The separation of the material world and the supernatural world was just confusing people. And Paul comes in here and says, beware of the philosophy. And you might go, but they didn't say it that way in the ESV. Well, they rearranged the Greek words so it makes sense in English. But you go in your New American Standard, your King James, none of them use the article. And so it has been misunderstood as talking about philosophy in general. The idea of thinking big ideas is a bad thing. No, it's not a bad thing. H.A. Ironside wrote it this way. Scripture nowhere condemns the acquisition of knowledge. Think about that for a second. Because there's been some anti-intellectualism thoughts in certain circles. You know, in other words, don't think big things because that's going to betray you from, 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 from the scriptures. You're not going to end the questions by not thinking about them. The questions will still remain. So at some point you're going to be confronted with these questions. I'll repeat where Harry Ironside started. Scripture nowhere condemns the acquisition of knowledge. It is the wisdom of this world, not its knowledge, that is the foolishness with God. Mm. Philosophy is worldly wisdom. It is the effort of the human mind to solve the mystery of the universe, and it's not an exact science. For the philosophers have never been able to come to any satisfactory conclusion as to either the why or the wherefore of things. From Plato to Kant, that's K-A-N-T for those of you who know who Immanuel Kant was, and from Kant to the last of the moderns, one system is overturned by another, so that the history of philosophy is a story of contradictory, discarded hypotheses. This is not to say that the philosophers were or were dishonest men. It is to say that many of them failed to avail themselves of that which would unravel every knot and solve every problem, namely, the revelation of God in Christ as given in the Holy Scriptures. Plato yearned for a divine word or logos which would come with authority and make everything plain. And that word is Christ, of whom John wrote, in the beginning was the word, the word was God, was with God, and the word was God. So you see, you don't ignore it. You don't say, oh, I don't want to think heavy things. That's just, that's, makes my brain hurt. Good. Because usually when you're exercising something, it hurts. Just a little bit. Dangerous philosophy, H.C.G. Mole wrote, 
takes its principles and draws its inferences a priori and from other religions and then brings Jesus in as something to be harmonized and assimilated. But this means it's a Christ according to the system of thought, not a system of thought or according to Christ. So, go ahead. I think that my degree was in philosophy. I got it out of ASU um, under a professor that wasn't a Christian. <laughs> Very anti. But what I think philosophy is one of those things where little knowledge is dangerous. In a sense, if you only know a little bit of philosophy, and you haven't studied all the arguments against each one of those philosophers, as he mm-hmm. says, each one counters the other. The whole point of each philosopher is to come along and say, all that stuff is stupid, this is the reason why. So when I got done with my philosophy course, even though my, my um, pastor and everybody was like, going, you're becoming an unbeliever, you're going to become an atheist, you're going to be you know, <laughs> I just became stronger in my faith, because mm-hmm. they all fell apart when you put death on the line. Mm. You know, it just so like, they didn't have an answer for death. They only had an answer if, in some way, we just pretend death didn't exist. Yes. In fact, there is a very powerful book that I had to read in a theology class, secular book called The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. And Ernest Becker's book won a Pulitzer Prize for its work, um, says that the foundation of all our psychosis is our fear of death. And if we eliminate that, we can all live happily ever after, basically. (laughs) So what's interesting is that Sam Keane, I think it was his name, who was an editor at Psychology Today, visited the author, Ernest Becker, on Ernest Becker's deathbed. (laughs) And said, so, Dr. Becker, do you stand by what you wrote? Do you have fear of death? He says, I have no fear of death. I have fear of not knowing what's next. And I thought, that's the same Same thing. thing. (laughs) He tried to live his philosophy and ended up with emptiness. And as you say, if you come to the end, the what's next, the scripture is really clear. It brings a lot of hope. So we haven't gotten through the first half of verse, the first verse of today's study. <laughs> but let's look at it, just the verse itself. See to it, in other words, be on guard is the literal meaning, that no one takes you captive. And let me tell you, being taken captive right now because of the issues in Israel and with Hamas is very vivid. So imagine that picture. You're innocently in your home and not aware and bam, you are taken captive through empty, hollow, and deceptive philosophy that depends on human tradition, which is where I went through that whole excursus. These philosophies in and of themselves are brilliant. I mean, they're fascinating. I found myself many years ago just pouring myself into understanding existentialism. Friedrich Nietzsche, Albert Camus, Jean-Paul Sartre. Just, and then Soren Kierkegaard's response kind of to all that. And it's just, ah! But it's human. And it's the, and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Well, let's look at elemental spiritual forces. What is that? Elemental <coughs> spiritual. The word spiritual is actually not in the Greek. They add that in there in the translation to help us understand what Paul is writing about. Because he's not talking about the elements, meaning air, um, fire, water, earth. He's not talking about the elements. He's talking about the elemental forces, meaning spiritual forces, and that can be uh, expressed, if you look down in verse 15 on your page, 
where it says, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's what he's talking about. It's a spiritual battle, a spiritual war. He also does it over in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? So he's talking about the spiritual warfare, the principalities and powers. I dare say we tend to forget that there is a supernatural evil afoot. And it's constant. And it never sleeps. And it never tires. And it waits for you to drop your guard. Briefly. I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again. Because I think it's apropos. There's a story of um, in World War II when Japan invaded China. Most people forget about that part of World War II. But they took over a large part of the mainland. The Chinese army was not organized and it was basically a lot of villagers trying to fight these professional soldiers. But they figured out one way to uh, destroy the tanks. You think, farm implement guys with little pea shooters against a tank. So what they would do is they would find a tank that's rolling around, didn't have a, you know, a retinue of uh, army soldiers around it, and they would shoot one shot at the turret. Ping! And the tank would slow down, waiting for the attack. Nothing would happen. Engine would start back up, Go down the path, ping, slows down, waiting for the attack. They would keep doing that until <laughs> the guy running the tank popped the turret, stuck his head up, ping. <laughs> that tank wasn't going nowhere. And you think about it, that's the enemy. That is the devil's work. He is pinging your armor. Constantly, just waiting for you to go, ooh, that's interesting. That yeah, Carl. Just brings to mind the Jurassic Park, the original one, you know, where they had <coughs> in the a compound, and he said they were constantly probing the fence, constantly. Just ultimately, they knew they would find a weakness. A weakness. That's right. Yeah. Does that explain why uh, every time I try and drive somewhere, there's always 10,000 cars and the whole life turned red? <laughs> and I'm in a hurry! Christine, <laughs> <coughs> yeah. along with all of this discussion with philosophy, there is a, uh, a film out right now called Freud's Last Session. And I think you would probably find it interesting because it's um, a depiction of, it's a conversation between Freud and C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. It starts with Lewis before he was a Christian and right. then afterwards. I guess it was a play and now it's a film. So. Right. Right. Because there was someone who wasn't an avowed atheist. Mm -hmm. And then he became this extraordinary evangelist through his writing and speaking about the power and the glory of Christ. Let's look at the next verse. Verse 9. Now, the translation we have is the word for. You could use the word because. Same meaning, generally. It's the intent here. And if you think about the verse prior, see to it no one takes you captive through hollow Deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ, because in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. If you remember the idea of the philosophy, the Gnostic concepts of the material versus the spiritual, 
that Jesus could not be both was a philosophy in the church undermining the deity of Christ. Which is why you have the one verse, then a because. And here, Paul makes the, one of the most forceful statements on the deity of Christ that you will find in Scripture. There's no other way to read that verse. You can ignore it if you'd like. It says, In Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Some translations say the fullness of the Godhead. It can be translated either way. You cannot mistake this claim. And I wrote here, almost every heresy begins with some type of denial of Jesus as the Son of God incarnate. I can believe anything except that. I can believe any thought, any concept, anything except that Jesus is the Son of God and demands my following Him and believing in Him. It goes back to what Philip was saying about those in Algeria hearing on the radio. You can have a biblical sermon right next to one that isn't. And go, well, which one is right? They both sound really smart. Yeah, they do. Remember the adage that discernment is the ability to know the difference between right and almost right. That's discernment. The difference between right and almost right. I came across an article last night. I didn't take the time to print it out because I didn't think I'd be talking about it, but I just popped in my head about a pastor that was put in a position by choice of the, by imitation, to debate an atheist. And there was this wonderful debate. The problem was the pastor said, well, the resurrection of Jesus may not have been bodily. It might have been a metaphor. And people afterwards hearing that debate went, why did you ask that guy to be the one to represent Christianity? Because that's not Christianity. Which created a whole other debate about the organization that put it all together. They all felt that the pastor won the debate, but he lost the faith. The difference between right and almost right? Be very careful. But when we look at this verse, I would say it's a verse, these two verses together, is one of those that you can take and meditate on and meditate on and meditate on every day for the rest of your life. And you will never plumb its depths. Think of what he's saying here. In Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God, the fullness of deity, lives in bodily form, the incarnation. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Same word. He's the head over every power and authority. Wait, what? This is that grand promise? This is what Charles Spurgeon wrote in his um, book, Morning and Evening, his devotional. All the attributes of Christ as God and man are at our disposal. All the fullness of deity, whatever that marvelous term may comprehend, is ours to make us complete. He cannot endow us with the attributes of deity, but he's done all he, he can, but he has done all that can be done. His omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, immutability, infallibility are all combined for our defense. 
Arise, believer, and behold the Lord Jesus yoking the whole of His divine Godhead to the chariot of salvation. How vast His grace, how firm His faithfulness, how unswerving His immutability, how infinite His power, and how limitless His knowledge. That is what we have. I could say amen, we could just go home. This is really powerful. And think of Paul's process as he's composing this to people he doesn't know. Remember, he hasn't met them. And his, I don't know, his desire is so much that they understand. And that's how I feel right now as I'm saying this to every one of us. I can tell you there's probably 95% of my week I never thought about this idea until I was studying it. Now, isn't that sad? We live life kind of taking this for granted. Whoa. We should never take this for granted. This is the grace of God. This is what gives us meaning and purpose and hope in everything we do. Now it's interesting that he doesn't stop there. He could have. He could have just ended the letter and said, Love Paul. (laughs) But he then goes into this discursus on circumcision. Okay. That came out of nowhere. I mean, seriously, it doesn't seem connected in any way to anything that's come before in this letter. This means there is misunderstanding in the congregation. There is a lack of understanding of what it means to become Christian. And if you think about it, we can flip over to Galatians. Galatians 5-6, where it reads, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Because in the Galatian church, Paul was dealing with Judaizers who were saying, Jesus plus the law will make you saved. And he was going, no, there's no plus. There's there's no mathematical equation here. It's Jesus is everything. There's no Jesus plus. You can flip over to Romans 2.28. And 29, for no one is a Jew who's merely one outwardly, nor a circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul is trying to help them understand that this physical act of the law is a spiritual metaphor of dying to self. In him you are also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism into which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Let me get to the next verse here in my notes. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive and alive with Christ. So, let's think about that for a second. There's an author named Philip Newman or Newton, who wrote this. The Old Testament practice of circumcision was a shadow, 
A circumcision made without hands is the substance. Let's compare the two. The old is external, the new is internal. Now this is news to the recipients of this. They may have heard it, but they're not understanding it. So you might go, I know this, Steve. Why are you repeating it? Well, let's go over it to make sure we understand what Paul is writing. The old is nationalistic in covenant with the nation. The new is individualistic in union with Christ. The old affect the body is cutting away the foreskin, while the new affects the heart of the removal of the body of flesh. The old was limited to males. The new is limited only to those who believe, male and female. Remember, in Christ there is no male or female. No Jew nor Greek. The old is a human act, the new is a divine act. The old has temporal results that cannot change the heart. The new is a regenerative work of the Spirit, making a person alive in Christ. The old is a ritual that cannot impart life. The new applies the death and resurrection in all its power to new standing with God. The old secures nothing eternal. The new secures forgiveness of sins and eternity with Christ. It's interesting, in this little part of verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, do you have any idea how many words I had to read on the whether or not how much water we should use in baptism? <laughs> oh my goodness sake. The arguments, adult baptism versus child baptism, the idea of immersion, sprinkling, you even have triune immersion in some churches where you're dunked three times, so take a deep breath. And I've told this story before, again, I'm going to repeat some of my stories, but I grew up Southern Baptist, and we would drive past the Presbyterian church on the way to our church. And I still have this picture of me with my arms over the, 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 uh, the, the, the bench in the car. Dad's driving, mom's, no seatbelts, of course. And we're driving. I went, Dad, why don't we go there? We could walk there. <laughs> and he would just say, oh, they sprinkle. <laughs> and I thought, it wasn't until I was in college that I had my understanding of the differences in churches' practices of baptism. Now, to get into all that detail is beyond the scope of this class. Just trust me on that. But it's very interesting to see this verse is used as arguments on both sides of the equation. It's really quite fascinating. He's trying to say, as, a, as and this is how we teach it here in our church, is that baptism is that physical picture of the dying and raising from death to new life. That is the picture of that act. And that is why Christ says, I, you should be baptized. This is not something you just go, ah, I can get wet anytime. I can just walk outside right now. And call it God's baptism in the rain. No, this is a public declaration in front of peers and a community. It's just something to think about. But notice something else in this verse. Buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in what? What does it say? It adds working of. Shouldn't it just have said through your faith in God? It could have. But he added something in here. The working of God. What does he mean by the working of God? What does that mean? Well, you start digging around into the, you know, the Greek. 
The Greek word for working is the Greek word energia or energy. And that is the same word used in chapter 1, verse 29 of Colossians, where it reads, For this I toil, struggling with all God's energy, that he powerfully works within me. And we talked about that last week. That Paul was recognizing that it wasn't his energy, it was God's energy that gave him the strength to do everything. Not his genius, not his will, not his strength of character, but God's energy. And he repeats it here. It's our faith in the working of God, the energy of God, the power of God to raise the dead. Verse Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. You were raised with him through your faith in the working of God. Ephesians reads, get to that. What is the immeasurable, immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working, same word, of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. This belief is not just belief in an ephemeral God. All right. In our uh, our text uh, of all the verses on philosophy, See if I can find it here. It's James 2.9. You believe there's one God? Good! But even the demons didn't believe that and shudder. So just believing in that there is a God is not faith in Christ. That's just an ascent to something greater than us. So you might even get to that agnostic who's, they're not sure what they believe, but they believe there's something. They're just not sure what it is. All right, that's, that's a starting point. But Paul is being very clear here. It's a faith in the working of God to raise the dead. And then he continues in verse 13 when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of the flesh God made you alive with Christ he forgave us some of our sins oh wait I mistranslated I misread that all every last one of them You know, there are many people who believe I, I, God could never accept me. I mean, he doesn't know who I am. <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> he knows everything about you. You can't surprise God. God can surprise you by saying, I forgive because you believe. That's the beauty of this exchange. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away and nailed it to the cross. I took the word canceled and I just started writing words. Erased. Wiped out. Destroyed. Deleted. You ever deleted something on your computer and so glad you have that trash button? Because <laughs> you can go and go, oh, there it is. Whew, found it. Because there are times where we accidentally will delete something. And you do know that if you delete something on your computer, it's not really gone. They can extract it. So that's why if you're going to give away your computer, you actually either take the hard drive out and blow it up 
or you run a particular system software that literally overwrites everything on the disk because it's there forever. Hmm. Kind of like our sin. Until you take that effort and put it in God's hand to wipe it all away, it remains in you. But once it is erased, it's gone forever. He doesn't see you anymore. He sees Christ in your place holding your debt and dying for it. So you don't have to. Okay. You know, there are certain times where you may have a student loan debt or a car debt or a house debt. And the moment that you make that last payment, the wash of relief. I'm done with that. I don't have to do that anymore. It's gone. And we have that almost silly emotion over our money. And this is about our soul. This is way beyond that. You could die in debt and go to heaven. And guess what? There's no, no debt anymore. Hmm. It's called bankruptcy. Oh, wait. <laughs> Different story. Um, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sins. Martin Luther once wrote how Satan laid heavy condemnation on him because of his sins. Luther told Satan to list them all. List all my sins. And then reminded Satan of some of them that he had forgotten. <laughs> he forgot about that time. And then he told Satan to write across the whole list, quote, paid in full by the blood of Jesus Christ. And Luther rejoiced in the payment Jesus made. You can write a litany of your sins. Do you have enough paper in your house to write it all down? Do you have enough storage space in your hard drive to type it into a Word document? I doubt it. And Jesus comes in and presses the delete button. And it's all gone. Having disarmed the powers and the authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them by the cross. He nailed it to the cross and triumphed with the cross. There's a small church in the Northeast that has very unusual architecture. Most churches have a cross of some sort in the sanctuary. It's usually on a back wall somewhere high. You know, we didn't have one in our church for the longest time until they ended up putting it over on the left-hand side when you look at, that was, that was put up there, what, 10 years ago or so? This particular church has a 10-foot high, 8-foot wide cross in front of the the, uh, the podium. So if you're preaching, you have to look around to see the people. It is front and center. And the man who was writing about it, who was invited to preach there, thought it was one of the oddest things. And it, he said it was really annoying. The cross was in the way. <laughs> and then he realized what he was saying and realized what the church was trying to convey to the people that the speaker was unimportant 
the cross was most important. And that the words that were expressed would then enwrap themselves in the cross and I thought, wow, what? But how annoying would that be to go to the church? I mean, you always say, well, who's talking right now? We can't tell. Is that Bill or is that George? I can't tell. Who is it? But what an incredible picture. The cross is so offensive because it's in the way. And we treat it that way. We want to just put it aside, not think about it. And yet, here's Paul putting it right there in front of us. He's taken our sin away, nailed it to the cross, disarmed Satan, made a public spectacle out of him, and triumphed over the powers through the cross. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together. The extraordinary message of your word. It goes beyond our understanding. We could come back to this even same passage again and again and again and again and again to be reminded of who you are and what you have done for us. And for that, we praise you and are thankful that you have had the grace to save us from our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.